Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Michael Concanon, the Vice President of Technology at American Express, and we discuss the benefits of connecting your team to the customer, understanding that time management doesn't just happen, and ways to get your team to ask better questions that lead to better results. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hey. Hey, how you doing? Fantastic. Audio sounds great, Michael. Oh, good. Just uh, an Apple headphone, but uh, seems to work fine. Those Apple headphones, it amazes me. They're so small and they sound just as good as these, as long as they don't rub against people's shirts. <laughs> Yeah, your uh, <clears throat> your helper there told me, and I so I tuck a wire underneath the uh, under the laptop so that should keep it suspended. Nice, isn't it amazing though how technology works so well? Oh, I love it. This this is just so, you know, that's sort of the opportunities we have as technologists to do all kinds of stuff is so amazing. And uh, I sent you over a few videos because I just I play with it at home all the time, from electronics to programming to everything, and it's just got. Kind of, it makes the world so much more fun. No, I love it. I was actually watching those videos. I like the musical tree. Oh. <laughs> so what did you do there? That was uh, just uh, an Arduino hooked into a MIDI port where I just bought a cheap MIDI wire, cut it open and hooked it into the Arduino. And then uh, that was running a strip of LED lights that we have on our Christmas tree. So uh, the fun part was figuring out what lighting patterns we wanted to use for each of the different octaves and the different notes on the keyboard. Um, yeah, because it wasn't just straight, like linear, it wasn't just like up and down. It was actually pretty creative how it was going. Yeah, we did, we did a different color for each octave and a different height for each note so that you could kind of play a set of scales that would go up and change color as it rotated through the, the height on the tree. Yeah, I love like the bass is like red and like the higher notes are like blue. I was like, this is really cool. <laughs> yeah, my, my son was the one who drove it. He's like, oh no, we need to follow the spectrum so that the low is the lower end of the spectrum and, the, and we go up to violet on the other side. No, it was really, really cool though. And it, it was on Vimeo, which we actually use Vimeo to power our business. So I like, I'm a big fan. And then I saw in your history that you used to actually be the CTO at Vimeo. That's correct. Um, I, had, I had a great time there, a huge fan of everyone there, um, and uh, only moved on last year. So, uh, you know, wish them the best, and they're, they're still growing crazy. I had heard a story. I, I watched a lot of interviews. Mm -hmm. And, oh, by the way, this is the podcast. There's no intro. It's just you and I hanging out talking. Okay. So, <laughs> so I, people are like. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering that, but I figured, it, we, were, I figured we were in. So, but, so I, I was watching. Oh, I, was, I was watching. Um, your Vimeo, but one of the things that I thought was interesting is I had heard um, one of the competitors to Vimeo, I watch a lot of interviews, and one of the competitors to Vimeo had been uh, talking about, you know, their startup. It was like an entrepreneurial type interview, right? Mm -hmm. And he said at the beginning, they were like too profitable, right? Because <laughs> it was such an emerging space. And I thought that was really interesting because of the it's such an important value, but there really are only like two, three companies that do it like really, really well. And Vimeo is one of them. Yeah. And, there, and there's, there's a bunch at the high end. Um, so it was about finding uh -huh. that right spot in between, right? You know, the, there's sort of these high touch competitors that do everything for you. And they're, 
they come and set up things and there's a lot of handholding, but those companies are having trouble scaling because you, you can't serve a lot of customers if you're that high touch and you have a lot of human needs to scale. Whereas Vimeo was, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of customers um, all just using the platform and not needing sort of the handholding that, that these other services were offering. So it, it's, it's an interesting space because the prices of these other the the high-end competitors were outrageous uh, for a service that wasn't hard to build. Now, did you, did did Vimeo ever take like the Elon Musk approach where you build something that's high-end and then distribute it down? Or did they always just go like right to consumer? It was always right to consumer because it was really founded originally by a group of guys kind of filling their own needs of like, oh, it'd be great if we shared our videos and we could do this. And then it, it grew into a business a little bit more organically. That's why the, the company's fair, been around a while, um, but it didn't really start to care about monetizing and growing the business until IAC bought them and, and kind of instructed them to have a little bit more of a business focus than they might have had uh, when they were more of some guys in a garage. Yeah, I like that they started... and. I- I didn't mean to talk a whole lot about Vimeo, but I like their, I like them and I use them and I pay them, but I like that they started to get some of those like business tools in there mm-hmm. because it's like, I was already using them. We, we have a like uh, a leadership program, video leadership program. So we already use them to host the videos. Right. Mm-hmm. But then we wanted to use like some lead gen on the video. And so when I saw those tools start to come out recently, I was like, I was really grateful for. Yeah. Those. And, and that's, that's a part of their direction is closing the gap. Right. So from being the, the tool that video creators who are kind of doing their own thing and the, the real like I'm making some music videos into the business side uh, is the big opportunity. So because that gap between the high end, high touch providers existed, it, it's about going into that space a bit and, and filling some of that need. Yeah. And the business is going there because it's like you're doing it so well. I know you from my personal life. I know you from uploading these videos here. Like you need to be my tool for, for both parts of my life. Yeah. And the, the team there really cared about quality of video rather than making money for a long time. So it was always about, okay, is the codec, does it look good? Can we get it in front of enough people to, to get a sense of, is it doing what our customers really want? Is the video high quality and not, can we serve this at this cost? Um, you know, the, I think I was probably the old man there going, let's, let's talk about costs and, and trade-offs um, uh, from a business standpoint. But uh, everyone there really cared about video quality so much that uh, I didn't have to. That's great. Yeah. And I, I, the first time that I had to start figuring out how to deal with PNLs, <laughs> right. That's always like a, it's a, it's a level in your career, like a new sort of maturity. It's like, if you want to get this amazing quality thing out into as many hands as possible, you cannot ignore the business side of things. Yeah. The great thing is that a lot of the problems that Vimeo had to solve over time have gotten easier too, because video distribution on the web was a hard problem and is now not so hard a problem. Um, and it, it makes the focus more on, okay, what are the feature sets that the customers want rather than can we get the video to play on everyone's machine? <laughs> right. With the correct ratios and quality. Mm-hmm. So, so now you went from Vimeo and now you're um, at American Express. Was that a direct, was that your last move? Yes. Uh, and that was kind of a, a pretty big departure for me. Uh, if you look at the path and maybe I'll take a step back and give you a little, yeah. a little more history because I've kind of like always loved technology and worked mostly uh, my career has been focused on digital media and e-commerce. Um, so uh, 
intentionally avoided financial services because I felt that the financial services, I've lived in New York, I grew up in Brooklyn. And so I always had opportunities within financial services and the jobs always seemed like we were an order taker in technology of there's a product group that decides what it is and here's your spec and you go build it. Um, And there was no, they removed the creative freedom that developers have in a digital media or an e-commerce company where we were moving faster and much closer to the product definition that I liked. So I avoided financial services my whole career. And that's why I kind of went down that path. Um, Probably wouldn't have even considered American Express if uh, I didn't have some connections here that convinced me to talk to the people um, and found this new love for technology here and sort of a, a transformation that started about four years ago to try to compare the technology here to the technology players rather than the other financial services. Um, Ooh, that's, that's a broader perspective. Yeah. So, and you know, it's, it's harder to judge against that, right? It's easier to judge against, okay, are we as nimble as the other credit card companies or or something along financial services, other banks? Um, It's much harder to compare yourself to the Google Facebooks of the world. Um, But you know, that's, that leads to a lot of the thinking of, okay, how do we change the environment and how do we attract good developers? How, how do we go away from the old financial services model of let's hire a consulting company to, to solve our problems um, and really own the technology, which I think is important to the success of the business. For most businesses now have to look at themselves as a technology company as well as a company that does X. So what are you doing there? Like what, what are you interested in there? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm focused in an area called disruptive technologies. Uh, Are you which, serious? That sounds yeah, so cool. <laughs> it does. I, I love the I love the name of that group too. But um, the two things that I'm responsible for are blockchain technology and robotic process automation. Um, so on the blockchain side, obviously, a very popular topic um, became popular with the cryptocurrencies and it's almost to a fault associated with cryptocurrencies. Um, whereas it's really about using the distributed ledger technology to represent digital assets and, and do things with distributed ledger technology. So we're, we're members of the Hyperledger project under the Linux foundation. Um, and we do a lot of things with them and we've launched a few real use cases. Um, the most popular one that we talk about publicly is one called flexible rewards where we enable our merchant partners to distribute points um, on their own. So you go into a merchant and they decide that they want to give you 100 American Express reward points for for any behavior. Um, You know, in the past, it's always been, okay, this merchant, maybe they'll do two times points because they want to be a premier member and they'll reward American Express card members. But now we can say, okay, you can give five times reward points on product X or product Y so that they can do deals with the the companies and the products they sell or they can reward on do a review of a product or you know come into the store and we'll give you 100 points and just do behavior-based rewards Um, so we really give them the freedom to do whatever they want with their their point structure and all of the reconciliation happens on a on a distributed ledger so they own their own nodes on the chain and then we just participate in that chain and essentially sweep the points that they have awarded up off the blockchain and onto our backend systems. So they appear just as normal membership reward points. That's amazing. And that exists today. That's like yep. out there. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, 
it's a growing program um, and it really gives the merchants all kinds of freedom that they never had before um, under a, a program that was the other programs that are somewhat limited to what information we already have about the purchases. So we have that limited transaction information, but this gives a lot more freedom. So how did, I mean, you guys are pretty big, American Express is a pretty big company. Like you guys are really yeah. big mm -hmm. and blockchain is fairly new. So you, I mean, you guys managed to get, get out there in front of it pretty quick. Yes, and I, I think you know it's it's important for us to have awareness of blockchain technology and distributed ledger in general. It's a disruptive technology that has potential to really disrupt even this industry, as as we serve as an intermediary, uh, enabling commerce, and a lot of the cryptocurrencies are kind of in that same space. So I think it was important for us to understand that, um, and then get out get out in front and and really be part of the movement to to embrace this technology and use it where it's appropriate. I never thought of it like that. Like you just popped like the idea of American Express acting as like a platform into my head, right? Mm -hmm. Normally you think you're a bank, you're a credit card company, but acting as this platform, providing these services so that people can be flexible and, and do what they want, that just is going to keep you so yeah. relevant. We're, we're, we're unique in this space in that we have relationships with both the merchants and the card members um, and the other card providers generally are either a card network or they're a bank. Uh, and not everyone has uh, this closed loop relationship. Now, were they asking for this or how did this idea come up? So th this idea already existed uh, when I came on board here. Um, and I've just helped manage the group forward with that uh, and kind of solidify the platform, get the team up to speed. And some of the other things I've done is in roles of CTO. Um, so that, that's been moving along. And I'm equally excited about the other half of my job, which is the, the stuff that we're doing on robotic process automation. Um, there's a whole field uh, called RPA that's become really popular in the last, say, four years. And these vendors are seeing crazy growth. But that RPA industry is, um, is focused on replacing humans with software robots. So essentially giving these robots a Windows desktop and having them click away and with keystrokes and, and, and mouse clicks, um, which is great um, in general, especially for a company like American Express, where we've focused on customer service so much that we've thrown people at a lot of process. And we have people doing jobs that are redundant and really you know, could easily be done by machines. Um, the big pivot and the thing that excites me the most though is that the advances in computer vision, natural language processing, um, optical character recognition has made it possible for us to understand unstructured data in all kinds of new ways. So all of the documents that get uploaded, all of the IDs for verifying customer information that get uploaded, we can understand those in new ways. And then we can decision on them in new ways because we can adopt machine learning in a different way. And instead of just doing the removal of redundant tasks, we can create all kinds of new process by combining these three things, sort of the, the robotic process automation that allows us to access systems that may not have an API or some legacy systems and mainframe kind of things. They no longer become a blocker. And then we combine it with these other two technologies and we can come up with uh, new ways to serve the customers that are much faster or more segmented than ever before because we have so much more information. That's fan. That's I love it. It's like the, we're living in the future. It's the, you know, <laughs> coming. Well, the thing is that as as we started the conversation, you know, like all this electronics that's available to play with on the side, and all of these technologies are here, and they're just they're just take they take time to 
to gain adoption. Um, and my job here is to make it easy to adopt those technologies. Uh, and that's, that's what's fun about it. And that's why I was, you know, took a departure from this digital media path over to financial services um, because of the excitement behind the opportunity here. Everything is growing so fast, but then at the same time, it's also like slow. So I was in Publix last night. It's like a grocery store chain down here in Florida. Yep. And I was walking through and I saw this um, giant stand-up flyer thing and it said, order from the deli and pick up like while you're like you can order while you're shopping and pick up from the deli when you leave. Well, in 2009, we built a prototype with Boar's Head, you know, the meat company. Mm-hmm. They happened, their headquarters happens to be in my city. And so I worked with them and we built a, an iOS app prototype that did exactly this. And it took 10 years for it to go from like what we built to actually being something in the store. I was like, it's going to take three months, <laughs> right? But for that technology to get adopted, yeah. Yeah. I love the expression sort of the future is here, but it's just not widely adopted yet. Uh, and that holds true. So it's, it's great that we can, we can play with these things. And, you know, I was at, at Sunny Music when we started adopting cloud technology early and it was so easy to use. And now everyone has this power uh, at their disposal and you don't need a big team to do anything anymore. You can order, order cheap electronics, you can get access to cloud computing. Um, and I look at all the, the random things I have in my personal life. And I, I just, I have my own cloud infrastructure running all the time for that all fits below the free tier at AWS. You know, the, it's, it's so easy to do things that uh, it makes, it makes a lot of fun things possible. So let's take it back a little bit before the Arduinos and the AWS free tiers. What were you, <laughs> what were you hacking around on, on the eight in the eighties and things like that? Yeah, so um, I'm in my 40s, which makes me a Commodore 64 basic programmer uh, (laughs) when things started. Um, Obviously, always super interested in technology. And as it evolved, I adopted it where I could in my personal life. And when when I spent the hours ripping my CDs into MP3s, I had a tablet on my coffee table with all metadata ripped from windowsmedia.com so that you could see the album covers click through and and play out on my stereo. Uh, you know, all things like that have been fun. And I got into Arduinos somewhere around the time when I realized it was the easiest way to connect it with everyday life. Um, so control outlets and plugs. And I have had a connected garage door for, for 12, 13 years now. Um, basically, as soon as we moved into the, into the house, I was like, oh, I'll network connect my garage door by just soldering some wires into the switch. Um, and then we w- went on from there. And uh, that's when I started trying to foster that love of technology into my kids too. And we started with the Halloween projects every year, uh, which just had been a ton of fun and an inspiration for, for my kids to know that they, that everything's possible uh, from a technology standpoint. Tell me, I saw the candy dispenser. Tell me about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we, we were trying uh, different things each year and, usually hooked up to the uh, garage door, but we had built a, an eight foot matchbox car racetrack a couple of years ago with a little sensor at the end to say who won. And we decided that that would be a good uh, slide for Kit Kats to, to head down. So <laughs> we put a couple of motors on the top that would release one candy at a time. Um, <clears throat> and then we needed something to protect it. So we ordered some cheap lasers from uh, online, got them delivered and then hooked up a smoke machine below a table. So it would look like the, the laser was cutting into the table and you had to reach through the laser to get out the candy. 
uh, that was dispensed by the machine. It was a lot of fun. No, I love, I actually um, learned about refraction with lasers because I saw one day, this is like probably 2005, I was driving and I, and I saw a um, crossing guard, you know, cr crossing section. I don't know why I'm failing to describe this easily. <laughs> the white stripes in the road where people walk across. And I thought to myself, I saw the yellow lights on the side. I was like, why don't they just put lasers in the ground and shoot them up? So it looks like this like wall or this barrier. And then I realized, and then I was like, Called my dad, who's you know an engineer. He's like, well, you would need some sort of like smoke machine, or you need something for it to actually look like a solid line, because that's how lasers work. And so I was like, ah, because before that, you go through life and you see some lasers, and they they're solid lines, right? And you're just like, yes. oh, you just need a solid line laser. That's all you need. And it's, yes. <laughs> it's like the nope. movies have the movies have taught us that, and that's why I needed the smoke machine to be able to see the lasers for the right? Halloween. It's funny you bring up a refraction, you know, and going back to my professional career, I started. Uh, at IBM Watson Research Lab, and we had a fingerprint lock there. And those all work on refraction too. They shine oh. the light into that glass, and when you put your finger down on it, it stops the refraction. So it, it makes it easy for a laser to take a picture of your finger. Uh, and we use that as the entry into the doorways there. And I eventually put it on my apartment in Hoboken as well. <laughs> uh, so that in the early 90s, I was keyless and just using my fingerprints to get into my apartment. Well, of course. Yeah, of course. It was, a, it was a ton of fun. I wouldn't expect I mean, anything I, and, less. And you can never, you never forget your keys that way. Um, but, you know, <laughs> so career-wise, that put me on the path at, at Bell Labs and Watson Research Labs. And then grew up a lot at Sony Music and learned to be a manager there. I was put in charge of giving some of these new artists websites and quickly getting them up to speed. But after we built a little bit of a platform, the bigger artists came back and we're like, wait, why do these young artists have more features than I do? So um, as a young manager, I, I wound up in charge of michaeljackson.com and brucespringsteen.com and all these big names. Um, and it made for a, a very fun job and an easy recruiting. Uh, you know, obviously, recruiting in New York is always a challenge. Recruiting everywhere is always a challenge. Um, but having a fun project to work on like that made it easier to attract developers. Um, and we just had a a ton of fun responding to crazy artist requests on a regular basis uh, as we wound up managing 540 different artist websites. There was always a, a crazy request on the table. Only yellow M&Ms on the website. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, had, we had some, some, some of the older artists asking for, for games on their websites that would never be played. And you know, some, some of them didn't make sense and some artists didn't care at all and said, do what you want with our website. And then we had artists like Pearl Jam who cared about, it seemed like every pixel on their website, they were really in touch with what was going on, cared about their fan experience so much that uh, they were on top of every detail. Uh, but it made for a very fun job for, for quite a while there. And that's where e-commerce started because once we had this massive amount of traffic, we decided to monetize it. And uh, I became more than just a, uh, a media guy, I became uh, an e-commerce guy. And a revenue generating person. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly enough, that actually caused the problem. When we were a cost center, uh, it was very easy. And then when we started generating revenue, they were like, well, here's your profit goals this year. And I was like, wait, no, before it was easier when we were just a cost center. Uh, so it, it was kind of more fun uh, when, when we didn't have to have a, a profit. Uh, but, but it was still a great experience and I learned a lot. And then, uh, my career progressed at that point onto Barnes & Noble, um, where I thought I'd get even closer to the media because we could do analytics on the, the text uh, there. 
And um, most of my time was spent just fixing the e-commerce systems because when I got there, things were not in a position to handle the flood of traffic that the Nook brought. And the Nook was a great product and it was kind of expanding at that point. So we had to just fix systems and get things ready um, from that standpoint. And I learned a lot about scale there, scale of e-commerce, scale of the metadata systems, and then scaling up people as I had larger and larger teams very quickly there uh, during the growth phase. So with these teams, and, and obviously as you've made progressions throughout your career of leading these teams of people and doing these great things, um, what have you noticed as far as some trends between moving in your career between the people and, and the teams? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm kind of fortunate that I've moved around a bunch because I could take some of the behaviors and some of the things I learned about the management style from one place to another. And you, that experience is, is, is super valuable. Um, the thing that I always come back to in terms of what makes teams happy and developers um, is one sort of the connection to why you're coming to work, the connection to the business. Uh, and if you give that to developers, they can be proud of what they've done. So sort of teach them. <clears throat> I've done finance 101 many times with, here's how the business works. And this is why we do our job. Um, and I think it leads to a pride in, in, in people's work. Uh, and the second thing I think that makes teams, especially tech teams happy is that they're learning all the time. So putting things in place. Um, at Sony Music, we had a, a weekly lunch where we, we shared different tech information and I've incorporated different flavors of that everywhere. Um, but those two things, I think, are the things that have made developers happy. You know, the connection to the business that gives you the pride and the I'm learning something new all the time as we adopt different technologies or try them out. Um, and the best way of learning is usually from peers. Um, you know, here at American Express, I'm actually impressed with how well we have training programs to kind of teach the basics and fundamentals. But uh, I still prefer the the peer-to-peer learning because you get a deeper knowledge, you get a knowledge of the new, the newer technologies and, and how to do things rather than sort of this coursework kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I've learned, well, I, you're, you're a hacker, right? You put stuff together, you're, you're an innovator. And so you have to have this ability to teach yourself and to learn. And what you find is that, or at least what I have found to be true, is that when I could sit down with someone else and hear their story, you, there's all these intangibles that come along with it and it helps accelerate that learning curve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've always preferred the team to be co-located so we can do those whiteboard sessions. Um, we're, we're somewhat remote, but we, we get together regularly. Um, I practice design sessions with the team all the time where we, we talk about, okay, what's the next problem we need to solve? And let's get everyone's opinion on the board. Uh, let's let's get that because I think you generate innovation by having everyone involved in the decision making. Have ever, everyone kind of put their design up there rather than having someone go away and uh, come back. But I'll give everyone sort of the problem statement ahead of time so they can all come with a, a preformed opinion of of a way to solve a problem. I like that. So you you give them the problem statement ahead of time, and then does that help them ask better questions, get better results? Yeah, and I have trouble sometimes holding my opinion to the end because, well, if you're the leader and you put your opinion up first, it's it's unfortunate, but you'll get a lot of, oh, we all agree. And I've, I've learned that it's much better to try to get the opinions all up there um, and then we can do it. And it, it helps me get exposed to an, a different point of view, something that I might not have seen otherwise. 
You know, I learned that from Simon Sinek and I tried it. Do you know Simon? Have you heard of him before? Yes. Okay. I've heard of him, but I know very little. Uh, he got really popular because he's got this really unique idea. It became like one of the most popular TED Talks on the web. And that was like 10 or 15 years ago. And since then, he's just released multiple bestseller books. His whole concept is how do I get ideas worth sharing and worth spreading? And then he just puts them out there for the world. And he has like a marketing branding background, but he, really sharp. But he put this book out. It's actually, this is how much I like it. It's right here. <laughs> it's Leaders Eat Last. Um, and he tells a story in there about an, an Indian tribal chief who would sit there and go around the circle and listen to everyone. And, and the leader would always speak last. And I was like, oh, let me go try this principle at work versus saying, here's what I think. What are your ideas? Which is what my default was. And it's what most people I see do. And so I said, all right, I'm always looking at the 80. And then I go say, what's the 20? And so I, I tried it out and boom, worked way better. Yeah. And it, it's, <clears throat> it's something you have to do over and over again, because the first few times you do it, people don't get it and they're timid about things. Um, and even in, in the design sessions in general, getting people to speak up is a is a training exercise that has to go on so you can't do one design session and expect it to yield the results you do it again and again and you find that the comfort level comes up and you get a more diversity in the opinions um that are that are presented and even you know the the benefits of having the diverse teams where more opinions come only comes out when you when you draw out those those opinions and you create an environment where it's safe to talk about those things so the repetition and the culture on this team, on your teams, is when you help foster that through these design sessions. So when people know that they're going into this session, it's a, it's a place where they can put out, pull out their creative ideas, work through problems, and, and then that just creates a team that's like, that's an interesting I mean, way to create culture. It's not just the, 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 the sessions, though. I think you have to do multiple things. Okay. Just like hiring is a long list of things that you have to do, creating a culture that fosters uh, ownership and then team input is, is also requires a lot of things. And, you know, as the teams got bigger at Barnes and Noble, we had a separate issue queue, uh, in JIRA, the, the issue management system that was just about new ideas. And I promised that I would empty that queue with feedback every week, um, so that anyone could submit there. And then I would give kind of feedback and having it even centrally located prevented people from coming up with the same idea multiple times and coming to me, you know, Oh, did you ever think about this? I'm like, yes. And here's, here's the answers why. And we had this, we could filter that and eventually over to the wiki of things that were on our backlog or, you know, where it was prioritized, but giving everyone a, once the team is big enough that you need process around things, put process around the innovation and the new idea generation so that you could, you could foster that culture of we value this and then we're willing to even commit to, a process and commit to time spent against that process. Hmm. That's I like that. So people don't feel shut down when they have new ideas or like dismissed. They can just, they can just go to this queue and they can see if it's already been suggested and what the outcome yeah. was. And then if it's unique, they can submit their own concept. Yeah. And you want people to have anytime they have an idea day or night, have a place to, to throw it down and know that someone else is going to look at it and give them some feedback. And that's important and valuable. Actually, as I was listening this morning, I like to listen to motivational stuff in the morning. I was listening <laughs> to an interview with uh, Larry Ellison from Oracle, right? Mm -hmm. And he actually got the idea for relational databases from like IBM research that they were like, they didn't really care much about. They like weren't going to really pursue the idea. 
And he was reading like an IBM research paper and he's like, oh, this sounds, this is a really cool concept. IBM doesn't even really believe in it. I'll take it. And he ended up creating Oracle. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing how many ideas that changed the world were, were not adopted quickly at first. Um, and then later it becomes obvious, but at the time, it's like, wait, why do we have to structure the data that much? Um, but I guess that has proven wrong. Okay. So we've got, I'm, I'm really interested in you. We're kind of getting into the good, like we're, I like this right now, Michael. I'm having fun. It's yeah, just, we're jumping around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you've it's it's all in the same area though because we're talking about leadership, right? We're talking about culture with teams, and you have some actually pretty unique things that I don't hear very often. I like I like your idea queuing system. I love the uh, you your experience in finding that speaking last is really useful, and and the information that you've given about like how you you know run your your creative sessions, your problem solving sessions, giving the problem first. Uh, you, you like to be co-located. I, I like to be co-located or remote. It's either, either is fine. You just kind of have to make it work with whatever, but what other sort of insights, things just, what else do you do? <laughs> Tell me more. I can write a book with this. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess jumping around, obviously I care about metrics a lot too. Um, and metrics can be a challenge, uh, across the board in terms of what you're using them for and, or do they truly represent what you think they do? Um, there's value, you know, there's sort of the business metrics part of things um, where are we providing value and are we measuring that the, the right way? Um, I think there's development metrics of how fast are we going? And I've seen various mechanisms to do that. You know, tracking pride is really what you're looking for. I find that if the team is very proud of their work and if you could measure that in some way, I usually feel good about the velocity of the team. The story points is sort of our best proxy and we use that on a regular basis. Um, and that gives us sort of the, okay, let's come up with story points, put milestones on a calendar and see we're hitting those milestones. Um, and then you have to still apply a little bit of human intelligence on top of it. Um, and then the people metrics, which I think are the hardest of, okay, how do you, how are you evaluating the, the professional development and the contributions of the, the various team members? Um, and that becomes even harder. Um, I've found that having good values defined makes it easiest to do that because then you can go through the values and say, okay, here's our 10 values. Um, and is this person demonstrating those values across the board? Um, this way we can say, you know, they're producing a lot of code, but maybe they're culturally not doing this or they're doing other things. And um, that, uh, that use of values is something I learned from the Amazon way, right? A lot of our reviews were based on the, the guiding principles within Amazon. And I found that very useful and I, I've used that technique then in other places as we go through sort of the metrics and say, okay, are, are you acting on the values? And here's the 10 values that we see as important in terms of, you know, contributing to different things and mentoring and leading folks. Um, you know, are you respecting others? Are you able to disagree and commit, which is one of the Amazon principles of, can you change your opinion and listen to others? And that gives you a, a metrics to evaluate people by. So how, how does that actually, like, how does that look? Like, when we, do we, like, let's say I'm on your team, right? Are we mm -hmm. meeting, like, monthly and going over the, like, how do we, how does it actually play out? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I believe in one-on-ones on a regular basis. With everyone should have that with their manager, um, and the one-on-ones. The whole point of the one-on-ones is for the the subordinate, right? To to, to get get their feedback during that, and then voice what they need from their manager at that point. So I usually have the the folks on my team report the agenda into that, as well as I bring an agenda into my one-on-one with my manager. I think that's what the purpose of blocking that time is. If I need something from a team member, I'll send them an email or I'll interrupt them and I can go over and do that. The one-on-ones give them a block of time to work on that. And then you need periodic reviews where you're making sure you're spending the time on professional development within the one-on-one. It's, it really comes down to providing feedback during those sessions. and providing critical feedback as well as the positive feedback so that uh, people understand what they need to work on, how they can change, and and then recapping that in an email of some form so that when you go back a quarter later, you could say, okay, did we address any of these things? Are we getting better? And I I like the mix of the culture items into it because that gives you some sort of like baseline. So when you're and correct me if I'm wrong, please. Like when you're having these conversations and and you want to maybe soften the feedback or deliver it in a more palatable palatable way, you can reference it against your culture items. That's right. It it definitely helps, and I, I think that's why those values come into play a lot. You have you have something to point to and say. When I've looked at these principles, and you know, we have a pretty good progression matrix here at American Express that I like, and I've seen other places too, where you you look at it and say, you know an engineer at this level should exhibit these 12 behaviors and, and do we see those? Um, oh, nice. Do you post those publicly by the way? Uh, no, I don't think we do. Um, but I think, you know, the, I think the Amazon matrix, although not public is available online. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure our Amex ones are, um, are within the CTO organization, which is what our, where I report up to. Um, and I don't think that that's public anywhere. Okay. Yeah, I've always, I'm always interested because I'm starting to, I, I randomly started asking this question of if their culture items are public and I get like an 80% no, like 80%. But I was thinking to myself, like the way I could attract, the way you, you attract, your vibe attracts your tribe, right? And mm-hmm. so if you put those online, you'll, you could, people could see them and you could attract developers that already know that they're a culture match because that's how they roll, right? And then I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. I, I'm in agreement. I think the, <clears throat> the history of in financial services was to hold information tight. And I think we're getting much better at that. Um, we're open sourcing a lot of code. We're, we're doing, we're making a lot of progress. Open sourcing our um, guiding principles is, is probably further down on my list of things. <laughs> you, mean, you mean that's not a priority? Uh, I, well, open sourcing it isn't quite as big a priority. You know, obviously, <laughs> I, I think you're right, though. I think it would, it would attract uh, additional developers, and hiring is always tough. Um, and I think here at American Express, the, we haven't gotten the word out well that we are now a technology organization and we care about technology. We have a love of technology. Um, you know, even speaking to you was part of my agenda is to get that word out. You know, I want, I want people to know that that's what we're doing here. Um, and mostly for the hiring, um, so that we can, we can attract the right talent. Um, that's been a huge byproduct of this and I had no intention and didn't mean to at all. I just found out after a few months, people would, I would connect with past guests say, Hey, how are things going? And 
one time uh, the first guy was in like North Carolina and he said, you won't believe it. After this, sh after this show aired, someone reached out to me, sent me an email and said, oh, I really liked your story on this. Your, your culture is a style and value. It really aligned with mine. The individual ended up flying across the country, taking a job and becoming one of their best engineers. And they got to know the person through the interview and they got to know the culture through the interview. And that, and then it kept, people kept telling me that it's happening. And I'm like, this is an awesome value add. Yeah, so I'll, I'll I'll let you know ahead of time that I have that in mind. <laughs> oh, of course, one, one of the by, byproducts of this. Well, because as as I mentioned, hiring is one of the biggest challenges a technical leader faces, and uh, as I alluded to earlier, you have to do a lot of things to be good at hiring. Um, in fact, you, you just can't make mistakes in many areas. You know, you want a, a good candidate experience, so we we spend a lot of time making sure that we're treating them well. And I always start with a a pretty long intro to what's the position about it? What's my culture? What's, what are my values that I, I bring to the group? Um, and then acting fast so that we could turn around as decision, you know, pushing hard on your employees to refer and, and doing that often, building the tech cred among the community and, and talking about what we're doing, publishing, doing the open source pieces, casting that wide net of things, you know, selling the opportunity when they come here of what they're going to learn and where they're going to go on from. You know, all of those things are, you have to do all of them to, to build a great team and then, and then keep them, spend time on retention, make sure that their experience is right. Um, sort of the, the best offense being, uh, or a good defense there. Don't, don't lose people and you'll, you'll gain momentum on building the team. You mentioned one there about recruiting, which I found to be incredibly interesting, specifically from Asana. Have you, have you come across Asana yet? No. They're like a task management system. They're, Pretty, pretty cool culture and popular um, mm -hmm. in that world of, of, of task management. But they had this, um, uh, Prashant over there is a CTO, but they have this concept, they have a hashtag ABR, always be recruiting. Mm -hmm. And they make it, they made it like part of their culture. Like it's not a negative word over there. People will recruit Uber drivers and you're at the grocery store, like you run into someone or you're at a meetup. And so this recruiting has become this amazing part of their culture. And that's always fascinating when you see someone doing something really well, it's like, how did you do that? And you know, what exactly are they doing? And the end result that I took away is that they've embedded it into their culture to where it's just something that's cool. You just bring your friends in, show them the cool projects you're working on and that helps recruiting. Yeah. And and team quality, like the, the, the team just gets, keeps getting better and better the more you have a, a pipeline of people waiting or, or people wanting to come on board. Google attracted a ton of good engineers just by making the, getting the reputation of being a cool place to work. Um, and that, that goes into that always be recruiting aspects of, of it so deeply. So tell me the type of person you're looking for. Like what are some of the qualities in the, in the people that you're looking for? Um, I mean, we mostly hire on intelligence. Um, you know, obviously, we're um, focused so much on the robotics space in the hiring that I have a good proposition to, because I'll be able to teach about optical character recognition, computer vision, all of the machine learning integrations we're doing. So it, it gives us gives me a good selling point of you'll learn a lot of these technologies. But I'm not looking for someone who's already done it. I don't need. Uh, you know, the, the deep expertise in one area, I need really good coders and I hire on intelligence. You know, the, the interview process is, a, is about solving, problem solving um, and talking through experiences where I wanna hear of obstacles that were overcome 
more so than I want to hear about, do you know this technology or that technology? Um, the ability to learn is, is what we're trying to test for. Um, and then we want to hire based on that. So you're referring to intelligence as like the ability to, to learn. The ability to learn, yes. Yeah. And not necessarily a, a corpus of knowledge from the things they've experienced before. Um, you know, obviously the coding experience, you, know, you get better and better with time. Uh, but it doesn't even necessarily need to be in the language that we're coding it. It's an interesting balance. You get someone at one end who's, you know, extremely experienced, but it's like, uh, I don't even know where I, I want to go with this, but my, before I'm even finishing the sentence, my brain's like showing me all the different possibilities. Like you can get someone who's very intelligent, who's done it before, and they can be like really, really poor because they're always telling you about like all the reasons why it won't work. But you can also get someone who's really experienced right? Who's done it before. And they can, over, they can have that understanding and that, that database, that repository of knowledge, but also have the optimism. That's just a really rare person. <laughs> yes. And, but you're, you're right. It is a balance of saying, okay, you've had this experience so that you can quickly work around obstacles. Uh, you, you, you've seen this problem before. You can move very fast and that, that's valuable. And that's what comes with experience. Um, but you have to make sure that there's an open mind that comes with that and you're not saying, no, I've already tried that, it doesn't work. Um, and not the, uh, the willingness to retry something and may maybe something's different. Um, you know, maybe this, this environment is different. You shouldn't look at that. Yeah, I was talking to someone who said that they have a, a yes and culture. So <laughs> rather than shooting stuff down, let's say yes and this. And I just thought that was kind of unique. <laughs> One of the directors on my team uses that Does all the time. Yeah, yeah that's, his, that's his thing. Um, so it's funny you bring it up and I, I like it too. I think leadership is a lot balanced, though, finding balance in, in those things, finding balance in how much process. Uh, I've, I've seen that over the course of my career as I've moved around. One of the questions is, how much process is right? I'm like, well, what's the size of the team? What's, how, how are things working? Or if things are, are broken, sometimes you need process to straighten it. If you have the team growing to large sizes, you need to add process. If the team is, is functioning well, you can loosen process and, and speed things up you know, the, those go down the lines. And then engineering versus product or sales-driven organization is another balance. You go back and forth. How aggressive you push on the schedule or can you relax? You know, how, how self-motivated is the team? All of those things are, they don't have an answer. You just find the balance. Um, and I think that's what makes the job hard. Otherwise, we would all just follow the playbook. And fun. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Because it allows people like, you know, you and me, the people that are willing to do what's necessary, even though it's difficult to, to rise up and to have more. Like if it was all like even, that wouldn't be as much fun. But the fact that we can choose to, to embark on something that's incredibly difficult and to overcome those obstacles. I mean, that's, that's, that's what makes life worth living. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, as I said, it goes back to the, if, if everything was easy, then... <laughs> we, we, we would just do it. <laughs> so, so now we've gotten some idea of the type of culture that's there, the type of people you're looking for, the intelligence, the ability to learn. Let's talk about like how they actually reach out. Is it americanexpress.com slash careers or like where I could put a direct link in the show notes, but what's the best way for you? Um, you know, Actually, reaching out to me directly always works. Okay. Um, and we'd have links on that. Um, we do have AmericanExpress.com careers, and that has the, the widest breadth. Um, because we're such a large organization, finding my organization in there is 
isn't something that you just do like that. Um, I mean, you could search for the robotics space and the blockchain space, um, and it, that will that will all lead to me from the enterprise standpoint. Um, but we also have uh, a ton of good opportunities throughout technology, so I would recommend people just search around and find the right fit for them. No, they want to work for you. They want to, okay. these people want to work for you. So they they go to LinkedIn and maybe and type in your name, Michael. Can you spell your last name? C O N C A N N O N. Nice. How do you pronounce that? Concannon. Okay, I got it right in my head. Woo. Yep. <laughs> That's a strong name, Concannon. Right. Yeah, it's it's Irish. All four of my grandparents were born in Ireland uh, and met in Brooklyn. Really? Uh, yeah. So. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I'll actually be out there in that like Brooklyn, Manhattan area. Um, I first of all, I have family up there. He's at, my brother-in-law is actually a music producer and works a lot with Sony. Oh, so okay. yeah, I was like, oh, that's well, cool. Yeah, he did a lot of the um, uh, in the in the early two thousands. Like the he was working for Universal and they did all all like the the kids bop type stuff. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, like the Aaron yeah. Carter and Brooke Hogan and like all those types of uh, younger kids. Yeah. We, at Sony Music, we had a very tight relationship with the Universal folks. I got to know a lot of them, um, you know, to the point where we were uh, had to sometimes watch what we were saying because we were <laughs> bordering on anti-competitive uh, because we, we knew everything that was going on at Universal um, just because of the, the tight social network that was around those two companies. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a, it's a totally cool industry too. I was actually, so my, my brother-in-law's name's Aaron Aceta. And we, I was talking with him about how like music actually hits the radio and like actually becomes a hit. And he was explaining to me all like the political relationships and how everything works and how a song can be great, but if it doesn't have the right timing and the right slot for the right relationships, it just doesn't hit and doesn't get out there. And I was like blown away because I heard one song and it was like way better than another song. But he was like, there's something attached. There's some relationship here with this song with the person who's choosing it. And so this less less cool song is going to be the popular one. And I was like, what? And now it's on radios. You hear it everywhere. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've watched as, you know, as technologists, we've watched as a less uh, correct technology has won the war over time in many areas. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not always the best wins, uh, even though I think as technologists, we we'd like the world to be that way. But we are, we are kind of talking about relationships here though, right? Yes. Abstractly. Tell me about how relationships have helped influence, like helped your career and your progression. Are they important? Oh, super. In both directions. You know, I, I obviously I've had folks that have moved with me from place to place. Um, and I, I've loved those relationships. And then I've had mentors who have taught me different things over time. Um, you know, I, I landed at Sony music and my manager there was a, a gentleman, Tim Nelson, who, tried new things all the time, was never afraid to fail. Um, you know, he, he fell fast and, you know, teaching me the importance of trying something new was fantastic there. And he was sort of new on cloud computing. And I learned so much about cloud computing that I've carried over through my career just because he was saying, yeah, go try that. Um, and, and we were able to do that. And um, I joined Barnes & Noble mostly following uh, the fantastic people leader skills that John Foley, who went on to found Peloton, uh, he was president at the time and he hired me on there. And he was someone that you just trusted uh, and he trusted his people. You know, he'd come to you, ask you a question and he'd put a hundred percent trust in and it built a, a sense of loyalty and learning those lessons from, from the relationships with those people were fantastic. And that's a cool company, that Peloton company. I like it a lot. Yes. <laughs> Everyone does. It's, and that's, it's, it's a brand and a culture he built, you know, um, and I think it's it's loved because of 
the love that he's put into it. You can not even like the whole biking thing and you can yeah. just examine the product for face value mm -hmm. and you can tell it's like high, highly quality, high quality produced product by people who are just incredibly in love with what they do. Yeah, exactly. The plug for them. Woo. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, what's his name again? John Foley. All right, plug for John, John Foley. That's awesome. Uh, so as, as we wrap up here, uh, I'm going to run a hypothetical situation by you. And sure. But first, I have to know, are, do you like SpaceX? Do you like what Elon Musk is doing? Yes, I'm, an, I'm, I'm a Musk fan. I, I think he, he's one a person I learned from because I sometimes have trouble exaggerating the vision. And I think he does that really well. Um, you know, I think even he doesn't believe some of the claims he makes, but he does it to, to put it all the way out there. And I think that's something I could learn from because I always, I get too real about what's possible. Um, but he's, he's done a ton of amazing things and he's got the right mindset. He lives fully. Absolutely. Yes. Right. So let's say, let's say you are at the gym, right? Okay. And you're on a Peloton bike. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And in walks Elon Musk on the bike next to you, right? You guys are having this great conversation, chatting it up. Afterwards, you jump in the brand new 2020 Tesla. It's not even out yet. Can't even get it, but Musk has a prototype one. You go back, he's, he's going to show you the new booster, the new, you know, the hopper, the new hopper one that's going on right now. He's going to mm -hmm. show you the new hopper at the, at the space pad. You go to there, but he's also got something special for you. He shows you behind this curtain, he pulls it back, and there is a time machine right? Mm -hmm. You get to go into this thing and you get to go back to yourself, like your very first time programming on that Commodore 64 and whisper one piece of advice into your ear. What would that be? And it has to be advice. I can't give myself like a stock do, tip or something. You, you can say whatever. You can't say buy Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. No, no buying Bitcoin. <laughs> no, just, um, <laughs> but what would it be? I mean, I guess it, it'd have to be one of two things. Either you know, taking time, blocking time to understand goals and that time management doesn't just happen. Like I think early I thought, oh, you know, I can, I can work on this and I don't have to worry about blocking time to make sure that the important things happen. Um, and then also, I think I've had to learn over time to celebrate success, uh, especially with my teams. I've kind of, especially early on, gotten to the point where we've hit a success and I'd kind of be like, yeah, we should have done that. Like I didn't get the, to the sense of, all right, we need a little bit more celebration when we hit the milestones. Uh, so it's something that I have to remind myself of even to this day, even though, uh, so may maybe if I put those in, in my younger head, it would have sunk in by now. So don't glass over the achievements, sort of like take a moment to celebrate yeah. them. Yeah, and I, you know, I've, I've worked with several people in my career who come back and said, you know, this was, this was a, an accomplishment. I go, yeah, it was, I expected you to do that. And they'd be like, yeah, but this is, you know, and even I remember one of the, one of the people I was managing, he said, why do, why does all your feedback center around the things I didn't do right? Why isn't there more positive feedback? And, uh, you know, the, that celebrating success is important. Um, and I tend to look at the, the critical stuff in the growth path uh, a bit more. I like it. That's that. I think that is fantastic. Your past self thanks you. Little annoyed that you interrupted him programming, but he says thank you, thank you for the advice. Yeah. Well, Michael, this has been amazing. I've had a lot of fun hanging out with you today. So did I. This was great. Nice. Next time I'm in, next time I'm in that area, I'll, I'll shoot you an email and maybe if we're around, give a tour of the office or something and say hello. Yeah, sure. You could stop by my house. I have, I have 
a whole bed of technology. We have 3D printers and I have VR headsets in my house. So we, uh, I just love playing with the stuff. You're doing the right thing for your kids. I've got two little ones, but they're under the age of two. But when I saw your uh, Vimeo videos earlier, I was like, from a dad standpoint, like this is the type of environment I want to craft for my kids, you know? Yeah, fostering that curiosity, I think is a gift. So I definitely work at it. Well, you're doing great. I love it. And I'll put, I'll put the uh, Vimeo link in the show notes. People can go check out some of the videos too. Okay. Sounds right. great. Have a great, great day, media. Michael. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye.